Thank you, Beth and Mia. I feel like I don't need to do anything. I feel like Beth did all the heavy lifting up here. <laughs> Before we turn our attention to the book of Exodus this evening, we like to begin each semester of study by laying some foundational principles that establish how we approach the Word of God. These principles serve as a framework which help us study the Bible well. As I said um, in the opening, each of us as individuals bear responsibility for the words of this book. So we want to do everything that we can to equip you to study the Word of God well in the correct way. And these principles, which you can find on page 8 in your study guide, are going to help us do just that. The first thing that I wish I had understood about the Bible when I first began studying it many years ago is principle number one, and that is that the Bible is a book about God. And I know that seems so foundational that you might wonder why I have to say it, but I assure you that it is something that we often skip, we miss it, we completely underemphasize it. But the point of this entire book is God himself. And the purpose of this entire book is to prepare us for and to point us toward him. So as we study this book, we have to be very, very intentional that we keep the point of the Bible at the center of our study. Every book, every story, every character, every chapter, every verse, every event in this book has something to teach us about the nature and the character of God. And we read and study this book looking first and foremost for those things. The second principle is related to the first, and that is that if the Bible is a book about God, then that means that it is not a book about us. And since the Bible is not a book about us, we have got to stop reading it as if it is a book about us. That means that we should not intently enter into our time of Bible study asking questions such as these first and foremost. How is this going to help me? How is this going to improve my relationships, improve my finances, improve my self-esteem, and so on and so forth? Because when we go into Bible study looking first for the answers of those questions, who are we making the Bible a book about? We're making it a book about us, but it's not a book about us. It's a book about God. So don't hear me wrong. That doesn't mean that we are not going to learn a lot about ourselves as we study God's word. But we don't enter into a study of God's word looking first for more information about us. We go into a study of God's word looking first for who God is and what God is doing. So a good rule of thumb in Bible study is that the he has to come before me in Bible study. Principle number three is that the Bible tells one big story. The Bible tells the most amazing story of all time, and the point of this entire book is to tell this one story. There is one consistent theme from God to man in this story, and the theme of this one story is unmistakable. And every semester, I come back to how beautifully and simply, this Jesus storybook Bible boils down that one point of the story. It says that there are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. 
the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. That is the story in which the book of Exodus is embedded. And when we properly understand that one big story, it's gonna help us better understand every smaller story inside of that one big story. So I hope one of the things that you notice about the way that we study is that we are gonna constantly draw your attention back to that big story that the Bible is telling. Principle number four is that the Bible is about real people and a living God who actually speaks to us right now. One of the things that I have noticed in the years that I've uh, been teaching Bible study is that we often tend to distance ourselves from the people and the places and the events of the Bible. We tend to focus in on how the characters in the Bible are so different from us, how the places are so far away and foreign, and how the events are so completely irrelevant to the way that we live life in the 21st century. But the people and the places and the events of the Bible are absolutely relevant to how we live life today. Part of our job as those who study the Bible is try to figuring out how. So we want as best as we can to actually step into these stories as we are reading them. We want to walk alongside the characters. And when we do that, we come to learn about God and his nature and his characters just as they do. And we do that, it helps us better understand the present tense reality of God's word speaking to you and I right now through the stories of the Bible. Principle number five is that the Bible is a supernatural book. Although the Bible was written by human hands, the words of the Bible are divinely inspired. And so that means that ultimately, we attribute authorship of the Bible to God himself. And because of that, it is different than any other book we are ever going to read. And so we approach the word of God differently than we will approach any other book. Because the Bible is a book written by God, we are careful that when we approach it, we approach it with humility. We place ourselves in submission to the words of the Bible instead of approaching it from a position of authority as if we have any right to lord ourselves in authority over the words that God has spoken. So we must never read the Bible without first remembering who it was who wrote the Bible. We realize that we are wholly dependent on the Spirit of God to uh, cause us to understand it. So we pray to the Spirit of God and, and we use the minds that God gave us to read and to understand and to think and to question and to wrestle. And then we ask God to lead us into an understanding and an acceptance of it and we trust that he will. Principle number six is that context is crucial. If I had to tell you the biggest mistake that we tend to make in Bible study, I would tell you that we don't look closely enough at the context. If you're misunderstanding something in the Bible, chances are you don't understand the context of how that was written and why it was given. Every book in the Bible was written by a specific human author. It was written to a specific human audience during a very specific historical and cultural and social time, time frame and for a very specific purpose. 
So we can't correctly understand anything in the Bible unless we first understand who wrote it, who it was written to, why it was written, when it was written, what was going on when it was being written, and so on and so forth. Something that um, I heard from a teacher years and years ago that has never left me is that we have to understand what it meant to them then before we can rightly understand what it means to us now. And sometimes we want to skip right past what it meant to them then and expect it to make sense to how we are supposed to apply it to our lives now. And finally, principle number seven is that commitment is key. Coming to know the Lord through the study of his word is not going to happen by accident, which you have probably already discovered. It takes time and it takes commitment, and I have found that I always have to give up something else in order to make it happen. So we're asking you to consider these things at the very first meeting of our nine weeks together, that you would make a commitment to study the Word of God for the next nine weeks, to do as much of the homework as you can, to show up to small group. We are a group of women who personally know the power of the living Word of God to change a woman's heart and to change a woman's mind and to affect her marriage and her family and her church and her community. And that is something that we desperately desire for every one of you in here. So if we are going to keep with our own rules for a better Bible study, the first thing that we need to do now is look at the context of this study. Because looking at the context of this study is going to help us understand how this study fits into the big story that the Bible is telling. Because the story of Exodus begins a long time before the book of Exodus opens. And the story begins in the book of Genesis, when the triune God of the universe, who in an overflow of his perfect love, made a world, and as the crown of his creation, he made us, humans, to be his children and to rule his world on his behalf. But in Genesis chapter 3, when we were given the opportunity to choose between God and ourselves, we chose ourselves. And that choice created a fracture in the relationship between God and humankind. And then that fracture instantaneously broke everything in the world. We broke fellowship with God, and the extent of that brokenness rippled all throughout God's good creation. However, God still reigned and he still ruled over all and he refused to give up on his people. Even in the face of our rebellion, he promised that he would one day send the one who would undo what we had done and who would make a way for us to have fellowship with him once again. However, the effects of our broken decision had created hurt and it had created division and it had created pain. It had turned us against God. It had turned husband against wife. It had turned brother against brother. And the pain of this brokenness reached such a crescendo that in Genesis chapter 6, we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made mankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. 
in response to the very great depravity of humankind, the Lord brought a great flood upon the earth. However, the grace of God given through one righteous man, Noah, saved us all from God's just and holy wrath. And then generations later, through the line of one of Noah's son, came a man named Abraham. And Abraham was a pagan man living in a pagan land, but upon hearing the call of God to follow him out of that land, Abraham obeyed. And with the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, we see God move to correct the broken bent that the history of humankind had taken. And God does this through a promise that he makes to Abraham. Actually, it wasn't just one promise, but it was a series of promises. And Abraham, God promised Abraham, who was a 75-year-old childless man at the time, that he would be the father of nations of people and that kings would come from him. And he promised that he would give the people of Abraham a place. He would give them a land that would be called their very own and that he would protect these people and he would provide for these people and that his very presence would be with these people. And then on top of all of these promises, as if that was not already enough, God gave Abraham this mysterious promise when he said to Abraham, Abraham, through you, all of the families on the earth are going to be blessed. Now, Abraham could not have known at the time the grand significance of that promise, but because you and I have this in our hand, we have the ability to do something that Abraham could not Because we have this, we can pan back and we can look at that full story of Scripture and we can know that that promise was an indication that one day the Christ, our Messiah, would come from the line of Abraham. And because of the significance of that one promise, at that moment in Scripture, the entire storyline of the Bible turns to focus in on this one man and on this man's family because this was the line through whom Christ would one day come. And these were the Israelites. These were the people who God raised up from Abraham and his wife, Sarah, whose son was Isaac, whose son was Jacob, whom God renamed Israel. And Israel fathered 12 sons. And those 12 sons grew over time to be the Israelite people. And the Israelites were a people who were created for and marked by their Lord God creator. And they were to show glory to God by their love of God and through his, their obedience to him. Now we studied the book of Genesis before we began our study of Exodus. And during that study, we had a chance to look very closely at the beginning of God's covenant people. And we saw that he placed them in the land of Canaan and that he promised that he would one day give them that land. But then at the very end of Genesis, this magnificent famine hits the land of of Canaan. But even in the face of that famine, we see God protecting and providing for his people, and this time he does so through a man named Joseph. 
This was the great grandson of Abraham. It was the son of Israel who years before had been sold as a slave into Egypt because of the betrayal of his brothers. But God was sovereign over the whole situation, and in his sovereignty, he protected and he provided for Joseph, and he even raised him to this position of great power and great prestige in the land of Egypt. So what the brothers had intended for harm, God intended for good, and at just the right time, at the moment of the Israelites' greatest need, Joseph was able to bring the Israelites into the land of Egypt, into a place of security and protection and abundance. And that is how the book of Genesis ends, and we enter into the pages of Exodus. The title of this book comes from a Greek word which means exit or departure, or the translation of that Greek word that I liked most was the way out. And I liked it most because I think it encapsulates the story of Exodus. It's the story of God showing his people the way out of their slavery. This book was written by Moses, who was also the author of Genesis. And if you look at the Hebrew, the opening word of the book of Exodus in the Hebrew language is and. So it clearly signifies that the story of Exodus is simply a continuation of the Genesis story. In fact, if you keep reading the books of the Bible after Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers, you'll see that those next two books also begin with that same Hebrew word, and, and, and. That's because all of those books tell a single story, and they're all written by Moses. So Moses wrote these books during the 40-year period that he spent living in the wilderness with the Israelites. And this study is going to focus in on kind of that front part of that time in the wilderness. And just as the first five books of the Bible, collectively known as the Pentateuch, are all share a same author, Moses, they likewise share a common audience. And us understanding having an appreciation for who that original audience was is going to go a long way in helping us correctly understanding the things that we're going to read in the coming nine weeks. So Exodus was written to that generation of Israelites who were with Moses in the wilderness. And Moses wrote it for the purpose of preparing the people of God to enter into the place of God's promise. Moses wrote it to prepare the people of God to enter into the place of God's promise. Moses wrote it to remind them of who they were, what their origins had been, and what was required of them in the covenant that God had made. And we're going to get to take a really close look at all of those things over these next nine weeks of study. The book of Exodus chronicles the departure of God's people from Egypt and the first part of their journey toward the land of Canaan. And last semester, we saw God deliver his people from their enslavement and this semester, we're going to journey alongside the Israelites as the Lord leads them into freedom. As they make their way through the wilderness, God is going to graciously lead them and teach them who they are 
and how they are to live as his holy people. The book of Exodus is written as a particular type of literature known as historical narrative. So I want us to enter into uh, a reading of this portion of scripture with an understanding of what that means. How do we read and study a historical narrative well? Well, we need to keep in mind a few things. First of all, we need to keep in mind that it is history. It is a record of events that happened in the past. But the next thing we need to keep in mind is that in addition to being a record of events that happened in the past, it's also a story. It's a story that was purposefully told and retold, not only to write down the things that happened in the past, but also to prepare and to give direction and meaning to a people in the present. So Moses wrote the book of Exodus to give that meaning and that direction to the Israelites in the wilderness, but the Spirit of God has preserved it to provide that meaning and direction for those of us reading it today. And so that is why the book of Exodus should not merely be seen as an account of events in the past, but we should see it as an eternally relevant story for each and every one of our lives today. So by way of review and for benefit of those of you who were not with us last semester, let's catch you up. What has happened so far in the book of Exodus? Well, the book of Exodus begins with a turning point in the story of God's people. Uh, Remember that when we closed the book of Genesis, the Israelites had been taken into the land of Egypt. It was a place of safety and security and abundance for them. But when we open the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 1, we read this. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. And that line is supposed to clue us in as readers that there is a change coming from the Israelites, that this reprieve that they had been granted in the land of Egypt because of the prominence of Joseph was soon going to end. When the Israelites entered into Egypt um, by way of Joseph, they were nothing more than an extended family of around 70 members. But over the years, God's promise that Abraham's people would become an entire nation had begun to come true. And this was no longer an extended family. This was a people group of hundreds and thousands of people. And they were no longer welcome guests in the land of Egypt. They were feared as a foreign presence. Because of that, they are enslaved. And this enslavement goes on for over 400 years. And then in Genesis, Exodus chapter 2, we read that finally the Israelites cry out to God and we see that God hears their cry. God remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham. God sees his people and God knows. God has been aware of everything that had been happening. So for the next 13 chapters of Exodus, we see the details of God's mighty and miraculous acts as he redeems his people from the land of their enslavement. So he begins by calling out from among his people a man named Moses, who God will use to deliver his people. 
through Moses, God commands Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt, to release the Israelites so that they may serve and worship him. And when Pharaoh refuses, God brings upon the Egyptians nine horrendous plagues. And each one of these plagues provides another opportunity for Pharaoh to repent, to obey the Lord, and to let the Israelite people leave the land of Egypt. But every time we see that Pharaoh's heart only hardens increasingly against God and his people. So as a result of this, these plagues culminate in a 10th plague. It's the final plague known as the Passover, in which every house in the land of Egypt that was not marked by the blood of a lamb suffered the death of their firstborn son. So finally, after the loss of his own firstborn son, Pharaoh relents. And he orders the Israelites to leave the land of Egypt. Now, the Israelites had been prepared in advance for their departure from the land of Egypt by the Lord himself. And so they hastily leave the land. But very soon we see that this reprieve that Pharaoh had offered when he ordered them out proved to be only temporary. And once again, we see that the Egyptian ruler's hardened heart turns more and more against God and his people. So he summons the Egyptian army and he sends them out. He commands that they pursue the Israelites and the army obeys the word of Pharaoh. They set out in pursuit and they catch up with the people of God upon the banks of the Red Sea. And then in Exodus chapter 14, we just see one of the most epic scenes in all of scripture as an almighty God parts the waters of the Red Sea so that it stands as walls on either side of his people. And the people of God pass safely through the very same waters of judgment that come crashing down and engulf the Egyptians when they set out in pursuit of them. And that image that we're left with at the end of Exodus 14 is the image of the enemies of God's people lying dead on the seashore. We ended our nine weeks of study in chapter 15, in the first part of chapter 15, with the people of God singing and praising and worshiping the Lord for all that he had done. He had delivered them safely to the other side of the Red Sea. So it's no wonder that they responded this way. They had just bore witness to and been beneficiaries of the greatest act of salvation that mankind had ever known. It is no wonder that the Exodus story became the story that the Israelites could not not tell. It was an event that actually came to define them as a people, it was the story that they would tell over and over and over again. This was the story that they would tell to themselves. They would tell it to one another. They would tell it to non-Israelites when they were asked, who are you and who is your God? Not only is it the story that the Israelites told to one another, but it is the story that God kept telling and retelling and retelling the Israelites. It was the story that God would use to embolden them when they became overcome by the power of their foe, Psalm 106. Yet he saved them for his namesake to make his power known. 
He rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the power of the adversary. He redeemed them from the power of the enemy. Water covered their foes. Not one of them remained. It was the story that he would use to remind them of his very, very great love for them. Psalm 136. He struck the firstborn of the Egyptians, his faithful love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, his faithful love endures forever. With a strong hand and outstretched arm, his faithful love endures forever. He divided the Red Sea, his faithful love endures forever, and led Israel through, his faithful love endures forever, but hurled Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea, his faithful love endures forever. It was the story that he would use to rebuke them when they forgot his very great might and power. Isaiah 50, is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the Red Sea. It was the story that he used to encourage them when their faith began to falter. Joshua 24. I sent Moses and Aaron, and I defeated Egypt by what I did within it, and afterward I brought you out. When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and you reached the Red Sea, the Egyptians pursued your ancestors with chariots and horsemen as far as the sea. Your ancestors cried out to the Lord, so he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea over them, engulfing them. You see, it's impossible for us to understand the history of God's people without this story. A people of whom you and I, as New Testament believers in Christ, are now a part, and as such, we must understand that this story is woven also into the fabric of our identity. This is a story that helps us understand who we are. One of the things that we highlighted during our first part of this study was how the Exodus story is our story. And we saw that every step in the Israelites' journey through their physical salvation taught us so much about the journey that we take toward our spiritual salvation. Like the Israelites, we too are enslaved, not by Pharaoh, but by sin. Like the Israelites, we too must cry out to God in the midst of our slavery. Like the Israelites, God has also heard our cry and he has sent a deliverer, Jesus Christ, the true Passover lamb, and like the Israelites, when we trust in what he has set up for us, when we trust for us in Christ, the finished work, that shows us the way of our redemption. Like the Israelites, we too have an enemy who has been defeated, and so like the Israelites, we sing and we praise and we give all worship and glory to God. Like the ancient Israelites, the Exodus story is the story that we cannot not tell. Every one of us in here has a story 
of how God has redeemed us from our slavery. And we are to tell it. We are to tell it to ourselves. We are to tell it to each other. We're to tell it to those who don't know the love of the Lord when they ask, who are you and who is your God? The Exodus story is our story. So as we venture into these next 25 chapters of the book of Exodus over these next nine weeks of study, and as we continue to grapple with the centrality of this story in the history of God's people, I need you to clearly understand, I need you to remember that the Exodus story doesn't end at the Red Sea. If we put God's majestic act of salvation at the Red Sea in its proper biblical context, we'll see that it constitutes only one part of the work that the Lord is accomplishing. The Exodus story is our story. And our story doesn't end with salvation. In so many ways, our story simply begins there. You see, God's great act of redemption in the lives of his people never centers on what it is that he has freed us from, but on what it is he is leading us to. And these last 25 chapters of the book of Exodus show us that freedom comes in the following I think as Christ followers, we can very easily lose sight of that. I don't know how many of you were raised like I was on those big budget Hollywood blockbusters. It was something my family loved to do together. It wasn't cheap with four kids, but any time one of the big blockbusters came out, we would load up in the car and we would go watch it. And I think that somehow that has conditioned me to just lust after those big dramatic scenes. You know, I want the depths of despair and the Israelites in chain. Cue the blood, the boils, the gnats, the frogs, the high winds, the high waves. Egyptians dead on the seashore. It's like that's what it takes to keep our attention. And although we'll see that Scripture offers plenty of evidence that God never shies away from those big dramatic moments, I think we see even more evidence of the fact that he simply desires that his people faithfully follow him in the ordinary moments of everyday life. And Exodus shows us that freedom comes in the following. So we're going to embark upon these next nine weeks of study, and I want us to be faithful to simply follow. I want us to press ahead from the miracle of salvation that he performed upon the banks of the Red Sea. And I want us to discover the beauty of simply and faithfully following as he leads us through the wilderness. Let's pray. Father God, you are indeed holy and you are indeed mighty God and we rejoice at the work of your hand. 
Lord, Lord, we thank you for the miracle of salvation. We thank you for each of our specific and personal stories of salvation, God. And we just pray that over these next nine weeks of study, you would teach us, Lord, how to faithfully follow you. God, you are a good teacher, Lord. You love your children. Lord, I pray for my heart and I pray for the hearts of these women. God, I pray that you would create in us just a hunger and a thirst for your word, God. That you would impress upon us these truths of scripture as we study, Lord, and that it would lead us into a greater knowledge and a greater love of you. And I pray all of these things in the name of your beautiful son, Son, Jesus, who granted us that salvation. Amen.